Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Bad people go to hell? I don't think so. You think that? Act that way. Hell exists on Earth? Yes. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the notorious candy mom, former VBW guest Agnes Callard is back in the news again. This time the subject of a, like, I don't know, 90,000 word <laughs> New Yorker profile <laughs> about her polycule with her ex-husband and former student, now husband. What is it about this University of Chicago ancient philosopher that you liberal elites find so fascinating. <laughs> You're the East Coast liberal elite. You tell me. Does she just have an amazing agent who is pitching New Yorker journalists stories about marriage? Like, I don't get it. I really don't. I don't have anything bad to say about Agnes Collard. I just don't understand the fascination. Oh my God, they've gotten to you too. <laughs> I just don't, I don't get it. I skimmed as you did, skimmed that article. Yeah. And I just agree with some tweet I saw that said, with some exception for us, since Agnes Collard has been a guest, but the tweet said, everything I've ever learned about Agnes Collard has been against my will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, we cannot say that, to be fair. <laughs> no, we We can't. invited her. That's why I said with exception. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I still respect her like immunity to internet. Everybody's reacting to this and the cringiness of it. And she does not give a shit. And <laughs> that's the key. Like that is the secret sauce, the cure, the cheat code, whatever. Like yeah. it is the way to just get the internet to move on almost right away. People who want to pile on and who really want to start some sort of thing. And they just are immediately diffused and like disempowered perhaps like her uh, husband's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a superpower of sorts, both to get people to care about your weird drama and also to not give a shit when they respond negatively about it. It's like a some some combination of stoicism and I don't want to say narcissism, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> it just washes off of her. Yeah, but I'm talking about like, why do it? Like I would never, ever want a New Yorker profile written up about my personal life like that. Oh, yeah. Like, is that fun? Yeah, I don't know. You know, she is, as she talks about, on the spectrum. Yeah. And she's just like, oh, this is cool. Probably, I don't know how she was she contacted by. <laughs> That's what I don't understand. It was like an embedded journalist. Like, she's like talking about having <laughs> no, PETA and hummus with her husband's. <laughs> Multiple days. Like, the PETA is like a big thing in the, or at least, but you're right. Like, I didn't even think of this, but I think at some point she's making PETA in the evening and then the next day 
there's also something with that PETA or new PETA. What I never thought of until now is, was she just staying at her house? Was was the uh, Rachel Avi? I don't understand how these things work. You tell me how the inner machinations of elite liberal press work. For you to say that when I'm down here, I've been living in the South for essentially the last like 20 years. <laughs> well, this wasn't our opening segment. All right. Yes. What is our opening segment? Uh, it's been a while, but we have come back to one of these idiotic <laughs> neuroscience articles with just the perfect title for one of these, maybe oh, like God. the platonic form of the title for this kind of article. Blame the brain, not Bolsonaro, for Brazil's riots. It's by uh, political science professor Matt Kvortrup. Okay, so you sent me this. I... I'm still not convinced that this is a real person and that this is a real article. It's that crazy. It reads like it was written in, in 2003. Right. And I just can't believe that anybody's making these arguments. No. Why do people take part in insurrections like the January 6, 2021 attacks on the U.S. Capitol, the storming of the presidential residence in Sri Lanka, or January's sacking of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidential palace in Brazil? Sometimes that question is answered by pointing to precipitating events, elections and their results, protests that descended to anger, or the speeches of powerful demagogues. On other occasions, we blame instructions on prejudices or bigotries, racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, white nationalism. <laughs> I suggest that we think about insurrections differently because they originate in our brains. <laughs> just, just perfect what? idiocy. Like, did we think the powerful demagogues didn't have brains? Sometimes when I talk about neuroscience, like this kind of thing, I think to myself, you know, you're getting close to straw manning what these people say. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and then you read something like this and you're like, oh, no, no subtlety. Just like you thought it was people's actions, but it's actually their brains. And <laughs> yes, okay. From a rational point of view, Rebellions seem pointless. Yeah. A political scientist even coined the phrase, the paradox of revolution. Enter neuroscience. Uh, yeah. Enter neuroscience is a whole paragraph. It's its own paragraph. <laughs> so the contrasting explanations, as he sets it up, are uh, relative deprivation. Actually, that's just it. <laughs> the reason was poverty or, quote, relative deprivation. It's either that or it's your brain. Or <laughs> it's your brain. I love how he says that they used all these sophisticated mathematical models to try to explain rebellion and revolt, and they just couldn't do it <laughs> until, <laughs> hold on, enter neuroscientists. Yeah, it was irrational. And like, we thought all along that this must be rational. We were flummoxed. <laughs> and then he proceeds to like, kind of just talk about studies that are just like, some of the things he says about the brain just sound like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Like when he's talking about the limbic system, he's talking about stuff that neuroscientists would never say now. And I feel like, like you said, for the last 10 years. They would. <laughs> yeah. So let me read it a little bit more. Since the early 2000s, we have been able to look at what happens inside our heads when we think using fMRI scans, which measure changing blood flow to brain cells. It really, this is such early 2005. <laughs> we can now see which parts of the brain get activated when we engage in various activities like shopping, thinking about sex and feeling remorse. This perspective has also entered into the realm of political analysis, finally putting the science in 
political science. Oh my god, that is so, I would be so mad if I were a political scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. Like they deserve what they get too cuz all their bullshit models are equally just fraudulent, but I will say like yes, I agree. I felt <laughs> for the first time and probably the only time defensive. Of <laughs> So you think, all right, is the upshot that like, because it's the brain that we therefore either can't control it or we have to do direct neural interventions of some sort? No, his conclusion is as banal as like anything anybody could say about what to do. So he says, this is at the end. Humans are the product of 8 million years of evolution. We have the capacity to use the powers with which we have been endowed, namely to learn by being attentive and through open deliberation. Human evolution hardwired us to process information and make progress through listening, Tamler, through listening. Mm -hmm. But when we engage in hate speech and angry rebellion, we revert to an evolutionarily primitive stage. Neuropolitics shows us a way out of the current polarized debate and into a better future. Yeah. So wait, what are we supposed to do? Talk? We're just supposed to talk about policy. And that's the big insight that fMRIs gave us. <laughs> no, but, but really... That's literally the argument of this column it's incredible. It's is incredible. that because of fMRI studies now, like let's uh, to use a term I actually hate steel man this yeah. <laughs> argument. Right. So the idea is that like some lizard brain region was activated when individuals this now quoting who are identified by psychological tests as radicals were exposed to hate speech statements or other yeah. intolerant assertions about other groups or minorities. And then he says that the fact that this ventral striatum was activated is remarkable because it's the oldest part of the brain and, <laughs> and it's linked to a fight and flight center. And then this is the key quote, the most interesting part of this body of research, generally brains respond differently to politics than to policies. Scans show that when people think about politics, as in the rough and tumble partisan struggle, <laughs> the fight and flight amygdala, it's just back to the oh amygdala, it's all, gets activated. But when people are exposed to questions about policy, they use the more advanced parts of the brain. <laughs> In fMRI studies dating as far back as 2009, yeah. Scientists found that the dorsolateral frontal cortex lit up, like you, <laughs> like lit up in people exposed to arguments about economic policy. Like, what is that? The boredom center? Like, the <laughs> exactly. Two things those findings are, are showing. The latter one that you just talked about is when people are asked about progressive tax policies, they're bored as shit. But if you show them, if you show Democrats Tucker Carlson clips, then they get mad. That's the insight. Which you need to have brain research to, uh, <laughs> yeah, to really determine that, to discover that. The ventral striatum stuff is just like involved in reward. So basically saying when you show hateful people stuff that they like, the brain shows that they like it. Yeah, like a racist person likes racist shit. The whole lizard brain thing, this guy, it can't be a serious, yeah, I don't know. I think there's two ways that some of these neuroscience pieces are fundamentally misguided. One is that they do the thing like the headline does, where it's not Bolsonaro's fault, it's the, brain. the brain's fault, as if like Bolsonaro doesn't have a brain. Right. 
that's just mind boggling to me. I find it to be actually like a deep mystery why intelligent people, I'm not saying this guy is, but I'm saying other intelligent people can sometimes fall for that right. conflation in a way that, or lack of conflation yeah. in a way that is, I don't understand it. There's something missing in their otherwise intelligent, like cognitive world. But <laughs> the second thing is they vastly oversimplify like what these yeah. regions and the various activations say. And this is the part that like, I think I was surprised to see in 2023 because you really don't find much of that anymore you still no. find the people saying oh blame your brain don't blame you know when my daughter was little i used to like poke her and then she'd say stop it and i'd say it wasn't me it was my arm mm -hmm. even she's smart enough to know <laughs> <laughs> that was a bullshit bullshit claim <laughs> don't blame the insurrection on the brains blame it on the rocks that they were throwing <laughs> okay here's a question I don't know if this is even worth asking, but I'm trying to think if there's any way this kind of argument could be not ludicrous. So what if, you know, the part of our brain that we really don't have control over in terms of like, I, I sound stupid, like I'm yeah, <laughs> just saying this makes me, but like there's certain things where our volition seems to be weak or non-existent. And let's say like, I'm sure this isn't true, but let's just say behaviorally when we're low in volition, this part of the brain lights up. And let's say this part of the brain lights up when you start seeing like highly polarized culture war debate. Now you might think that participating in that was voluntary because people seem to choose to do it all the time. But would this tell you that maybe it's less voluntary than you thought it was? Oh man. I, you know, there's so much that I'd want to know about what is going on with the low volition conditions. Like, is it something like, you know, when you're sleepwalking, or when you have like alien hand syndrome and one hand is like going crazy. Right. Because the emotion stuff, it's just like, well, now, now it's just arguments that lead in the end to doubting that anything really is under volitional control. Like, I, you know, but I, I genuinely don't think that the brain can tell us what is under volitional control and what isn't. I, you know, I. Right. So initially it would have just been because of correlations with behavioral studies, right? Yeah. Like, like I'm trying to figure out if like, even in principle, like, yeah. so the idea is initially they matched the lack of volition to these brain states. And then we're surprised, like he says, like, right. it's remarkable that the ventral striatum was activated because that's usually associated with this less voluntary you see what I'm saying? Like, is yeah. the structure here something that could possibly work? Because I, I think not, but I'm not sure I'm right about that. It's possible that in principle, something like this could. We were like, well, we thought you were deliberating, but in fact, your brain is acting like the brain yeah. of a hypnotized person, even though you appear to be acting sort of voluntarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of our conversation with Sam Harris that we titled Tumors All the Way Down about the, and we had the case of the guy whose tumor was acting on his brain. Mm -hmm. But he didn't recognize that. 
And in that case, it is a little tricky because his actions appeared voluntary. So, so this kind of analysis to say, like, is this person acting voluntarily or not? I really don't think that there's anything in the brain. I guess it depends if you mean involuntary in the sense that we should reduce our blame for these kinds of actions. Is he mounting a defense of, you know, being more lenient on, on yeah, the these January people? Yeah, the January 6th people. Yeah. yeah, but it's not. It's like, let's talk to them. But let's talk to them about, you know, like the Build Back Better plan. <laughs> this argument that he ends with seems to undermine any of that voluntariness stuff because it's like, well, if you can just talk, if what you're saying is just like talk to these people, <laughs> right. then they seem reasons responsive. So it wasn't like some reflex, some like lizard brain knee jerk reaction, um, or at least it, it's a kind of reaction right. that can be overridden by deliberation. And in that case, I would say, well, then you should have overridden it before you did it or something like that, you know? No, no, no. But to be clear, the blame stuff, I think, is its own question. I'm saying, like, could it actually get you to cure a bad habit or, you know, at a societal level, improve the state of discourse? Could, in principle, an fMRI set of studies, neuroscientific research actually help for that? Could it, in principle, tell us anything more than behavioral studies and self-report studies tell us? Like, could it add anything to that? You know, I have a ton of neuroscience colleagues who always get pissed off at me for all of the things that we say on this podcast, but I'm going to double down. Yeah. I genuinely don't think so. So it's like neuromarketing, which was popular for a while, which was like, oh, look, when you show people fizzly Coke on the screen, their reward centers light up. And yeah. so, okay, that makes sense. But is that something that you couldn't have learned by just showing them that stuff and seeing if they want to drink it. Yeah. And they want to buy it. Yeah. And they want to buy it. There have to be examples that, that make me wrong about this. But for the life of me, I don't know what it would mean to show that this particular part of the brain, unless you were talking some real low level shit, some real like brainstem stuff was going on that like made me slap you. <laughs> it's not about responsibility. It's just about adding anything, adding something that would, let's say, instrumentally, whether it's getting people to buy Sprite or getting people to move beyond the polarized state of our political discussion. Okay, here, I'll play. In principle, I think that if you found, and it would have to be at a much more detailed level of analysis than this guy is talking, but suppose that you found that there is a particular neurotransmitter working in a particular network, it actually causes people to be hateful. So, or that is heavily implicated. And you say, everybody who is like deeply racist has like super increased activity in this network that is sensitive to these neurotransmitters. You could, I think, develop a drug that targeted that. And maybe wow, in, the hopes, take, take in the hopes of reducing that. This is all like just totally in principle. But I don't think if you're talking at the level of analysis of like what to do for like public service announcement stuff, it's like such a different level of analysis. I think that yeah, yeah, it just doesn't make that much sense. If it was something you started to consider as like a medical condition to <laughs> yeah. design a drug, but if you could design a drug, why can't you just design a way of speaking or a way of interacting? Or I mean, it's essentially that's what therapy does, right? So we know the whole serotonin hypothesis about depression has come under 
scrutiny. But suppose that that's true, that in some simplistic way, depression is a depletion of serotonin. And we know that therapy works on it, so it must work by increasing serotonin levels. And also drugs work that way. It's just that I don't think we needed to learn that to know that therapy worked, right? That just was like a happenstance discovery after the fact. Right, right, right. Because it must work some way. (laughs) There's got to be some kind of brain and body-based way that it works because otherwise you're a Cartesian dualist. But (laughs) there is something interesting. Like when you said the thing about the drug, I was like, oh yeah, that could help. And something in me... Yeah. Not the limbic system, but that other one, the good one, the good part, <laughs> of the, the good advanced recent. It's just devils and angels. <laughs> like which part of your brain is the devil on your shoulder? Yeah. And which way? <laughs> this is the Kant area, the Kantian area of my brain lit up. But like it does seem more plausible in the case of a drug than in the case of just adjusting social interaction. But yeah. am I suffering at that level then from the same delusion or... Is there a principled reason why it's more plausible in the case of a drug? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there is this way in which a drug can bypass the normal inputs. Like, uh, so suppose that you did something just really kind for me and that filled me with some warm, like gratitude and appreciation and love for you. Or I just took ecstasy and I was like, that bypassed all of the normal ways in which that system would get activated. Or I take cocaine, right? And I just go straight to the reward system. I think that drugs and whatever other brain manipulating things that we can invent could just radically alter behavior. Right. And the way that neuroscience would help at that is you would study how you felt. Like all of this is fantasy at this level (laughs) of technology that we had. But you would study your brain when I did something really nice for you. And then you would design a drug that could try to activate those same parts of the brain. Now, if you're then talking about behaviorally, well, I already know that we can make (laughs) you feel good by (laughs) giving you stuff because that's what led us to make this connection in the first place. And so I don't need the brain to tell me, in fact, it seems completely irrelevant, do more of this kind of thing because it makes him feel happy. Because the whole reason that they even know that in the first place in the brain studies are because you report it. Right. And now we're into like some SOMA territory where the government will eventually control us by putting certain drugs in our, in our water. And, if uh, it hasn't already. <laughs> I mean, it made frogs gay. <laughs> you don't mean French people, you mean. <laughs> no, there was like a while back, like in some very conservative circles, it might have been an Alex Jones thing, that like there was chemicals in the water that turned frogs gay. <laughs> and then he thought, this is why the gays were all of a sudden everywhere. <laughs> They made crickets want to do drag shows for children. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm glad you made me think a little bit more deeply about this. If a doctor said, uh, Tamler, there's this new drug that we've discovered will make you argue less with your wife and have just a happier marriage. Like nothing in your life will materially change. It's just that you won't argue with your wife anymore. Would you take it? You had me at new drug. (laughs) It's because she's on the drug already. <laughs> if she's, I have, she has been hitting me less, actually. <laughs> That's a different question altogether. I would definitely give it to my partner. To st- <laughs> you would slip it into like. <laughs> so that way I'm not, I'm not risking any, any monkey paw scenario for myself. <laughs> yeah. 
you have a long history of slipping things in women's drinks too. So. <laughs> That's terrible. No. Which part of your brain lit up when I said that? <laughs> the, the Bill Cosby part. <laughs> <laughs> the Bill Cosby region. <laughs> so we never even said what we we're talking about today, no. but we are talking about a paper from 1971 by Jeffrey Murphy called Marxism and Retribution. It has a healthy dollop of Kant and a healthy dollop of Marx. So something for both of us. And not at all, by the way, unrelated to the, the beginning. Yeah. No, exactly. I didn't want to make the connection. <laughs> nobody would understand what right. we were referring to, but I had the same thought exactly. All right. We'll be right back to talk about Marxism and Retribution. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you again by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you've probably gotten the sense that we believe that there are various ways in which you can improve your life, various ways in which you can acquire insight into yourself, into your relationships, into the human condition. For instance, consuming art, watching a great movie, reading a great novel. But there are other ways, like developing uh, honest relationships with others who might uh, be able to tell you things that you don't want to hear. And therapy is just that. I think one of the great insights of 20th century psychology is that therapy can help anybody no matter what stage or what issues they're having in their lives. And it's never been easier to get therapy, to go see a therapist. You can try BetterHelp Online Therapy if you want to get that process started. BetterHelp will connect you to a licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. All you have to do is go to their website, fill out a brief questionnaire, and they'll match you with a therapist. You can change that therapist if you don't like them at no additional cost to you. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. So if you're at all at the stage of your life where you're considering uh, trying out therapy, why not give BetterHelp Online Therapy a try? Just go to betterhelp.com, that's uh, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash B-B-W today to get 10% off of your first month of therapy. That's betterhelp.com slash V-B-W. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment to thank everybody for all their support. We really appreciate it. And Tamler, man, th there's just been a, maybe it's Piranesi, the episode that brought out people's nice emotions, but we've gotten so yeah. many nice emails from people um, yeah. that like, I can't tell you how much like they meant to me. Um, yeah, it does seem like maybe it brought out people's generosity of spirit. Yeah, I feel like know, that too. Yeah. Modeled on Piranesi, the character. And yeah. you know why? It's because uh, we 
we uh, tickled that part of their brain. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you, the Piranesi, the Piranesi uh, module. <laughs> uh, if you want to email us, uh, we we love to hear from you. You can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at Tamler or at Pease or at verybadwizards. If you want to join with fellow listeners uh, in discussions on Reddit, you can go to reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. And you can follow us on Instagram, see our new episodes posted. And we very much also appreciate it if you rate us on Apple Podcasts or listen, subscribe on Spotify just to help us get seen and discovered. And I'll say it for Tamler, give us a five-star rating. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, we, we really appreciate all that. So thank you for getting in touch with us. Thank you for supporting us. Yeah, thank you. And if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, there's a bunch of ways you can do that, all of which are on our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. Uh, you can buy some swag. You can give us a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Or you can become one of our Patreon supporters, beloved, beloved, beloved Patreon supporters of the house, of the pod. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, we have a lot going on on Patreon. Um, so for $1 per episode, so it's essentially $2 a month, you get all ad-free ad episodes um, and six volumes of Dave's Beats. At $2 and up per episode, you get all of that plus uh, our bonus episodes. And we have a huge archive at this yeah. point of bonus content. And all of it is not, you know, tied to the date in any way. Right. So included in that are monthly Ask Us Anythings, which I'll come back to. Um, and also our Ambulators series, yeah. which is one of the, one of our favorite things that we've ever done is uh, a detailed recap of every uh, Deadwood episode and we have finished with the first season we're itching to get started so, on the second season so, like there's like there's very few things in terms of like work stuff or anything like that that excites me like I just look forward to to yeah. the next ambulator and starting now you also get early access and I'm saying this through gritted teeth and <laughs> my lizard the brain fight or flight amygdala right now is just uh, lighting up like a Christmas tree. But you will also get early access to uh, Dave Pizarro's new podcast um, with Paul Bloom called Psych, which is a limited, if I'm to understand correctly, series. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's based on, thank you. Tamler was saying it through much love too. Gritted teeth and love. It's yeah. love, will, love is a motherfucker. <laughs> um uh yeah it's a, a 16 episode run we're gonna do of uh paul and i talking about intro psych stuff it was inspired by the fact that he has a book uh, called psych coming out that's just intro psych stuff and yeah we're putting it out and we're giving our dear patrons early access to each episode um yeah yeah i think if you like paul and chances are you do yeah um and it's very different a lot less cursing uh than this it's, uh, really is yeah. it like is it supposed to be not explicit or it's yeah, not explicit yeah it's but because one of the things i really wanted to do was just have like a set of these episodes where i could say to my intro psych students like if you want to hear more about these topics like listen to this and my hope is that other professors might care enough so we really paul was actually insistent and the first time we recorded i said shit and at the end he's like you said shit <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> all right. Sorry, Paul. Bleep it out. All right. So I'm a little less worried about this. Uh, it's very different. You just running off together and leaving me <laughs> behind. Um, if anything, I'm sure, we, would bring you, we would bring you to live together with us. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's where this is heading, I can tell. And uh, maybe, Ra- I don't know if you're listening to this, Rachel Aviv, but uh, <laughs> I want to write about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a whole double issue of the New Yorker devoted just <laughs> to, to that story. Uh, yeah, no, that's very exciting, and obviously, uh, Paul is a beloved, the beloved guest of the pod. So, yeah, um, right. uh, I'm happy that you're doing that. Um, at five dollars and up, you will get access, in addition to all of what we just said, our Brothers Karamazov series. Five episodes on the Brothers Karamazov. That's also one of uh, our favorite things we've ever done. You will get to see how many, like 10, 12 videos of your intro psych lectures that you recorded during COVID. Very professionally done. (laughs) And uh, a couple of lectures I gave on Plato's Symposium that are not professionally done. And you will also get to vote on an episode topic. Um, We do that twice a year. Uh, we allow our $5 and up listeners to vote on an episode topic that we choose from finalists that all of our patrons can uh, uh, suggest. Uh, finally, at the $10 and up per episode tier, you get to every month ask us questions and 99.9% of the time we will answer that question uh, in a monthly video that we release to you. And we really enjoy those. I'm excited uh, to do another one of those as well. So, And then, like I said earlier, we also released the audio uh, version of that to our uh, to the $2 and up tier. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. We're blown away. And everyone always says, like, I'm humbled by uh, the amount of support. And it always sounds like, just arrogant bullshit but i kind of get it when i think about our patrons you know yeah totally it's it's really nice all right let's get to our paper our article i i I would argue could be could belong in our classic paper series it's not maybe as well known as some of the other ones but it is a classic i mean it's it's old enough to be a classic i didn't know anything about it it's i don't even know anything about the the author to be honest yeah yeah. Jeffrey Murphy is his name. Uh, definitely somebody um, who is known in philosophy of punishment circles. Professor at Arizona State. Uh, done a lot of good stuff um, in this area. This is one of his earliest papers. Published in Philosophy of Public Affairs called Marxism and Retribution. I've taught this in my philosophy of punishment class for years. And I always really admired it, liked it, thought it was important in spite of the affinities with Kant that uh, Murphy has. Surprising. That's, I know. Uh, So just to briefly summarize what's going on in the paper, uh, Murphy starts out offering a somewhat question-begging Kantian critique of utilitarianism. Um, and, and one thing that he notes is that everyone focuses on the problem that utilitarianism could maybe justify punishing the innocent. But Murphy says what needs to get more attention is that they also can't really justify punishing guilty people 
because utilitarians can't answer the question of what right we have to inflict suffering on people in order just to promote better consequences. Um, so quoting Marx, he says, what right have you to punish me for the amelioration or intimidation of others? Because that is the justification that utilitarians often give for punishment is deterrence and maybe rehabilitation rehabilitation, right? right? So according to Murphy, the problem, the fatal problem with utilitarianism is that it can't draw a distinction between what it would be good to do and what we have a right to do. And he says any theory that can't make sense of that distinction between what's good to do and what we have a right to do is morally degenerate. <laughs> and actually, surprisingly to me anyway, he claims Marx as an ally when it comes to this view and quotes a couple of things. But then comes the twist. Uh, while Murphy believes that retributivism is the only morally defensible theory in principle, he argues that it's indefensible in practice in a capitalist society like our own. Uh, the reasons why, well, first, the theory relies on false empirical assumptions about social conditions and human relations. And second, and this is really interesting, uh, it treats certain concepts uh, and gives analyses of certain concepts like rationality as necessary truths when, in fact, they reflect historical contingencies. In other words, that the way we understand a concept like rationality is an artifact of living in a modern capitalist system, and it's not the truth about what is rational and what isn't. So in practice, even though retributivism is, is a morally correct theory in principle, in practice, it it turns out to just offer a transcendental sanction for the status quo, uh, a way to kind of justify the ruling class staying in power. And, and as a result, Murphy concludes that modern societies largely lack the right to punish people at all because utilitarianism is a dead end and retributivism for different reasons turns out to be a dead end and so we don't have the right to punish people and would have to transform society in order to, to get that right. Now, I want to go through the arguments here in some depth, but I'll stop this summary just to ask you what you thought of the paper because obviously you're going to splooge all over the Kantianism <laughs> in it. But you're also a libertarian Hayekian zealot, so the Marx can't have gone down too too well. So, what which side wins? That's a good question. So, I enjoyed the paper, although I I do find that my um, my objections lie mostly, as you predicted, on on the the Marxist arguments, which we'll get to. I was. I enjoyed it because I was very surprised that there would be a Kantian Marxist. <laughs> like, it's just yeah, weird. It's just it is very weird. like anybody who I've ever talked to, you know, and that's granted not a lot of people about stuff like this. It's like Marxism and utilitarianism feel just feel like they belong together a bit more than than Kantianism. I I don't think that I I I find that um, utilitarianism and Marxism like are coherent as as too far. I just it's more the the people who tend to be Marxists that I know. Vlad essentially. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe, but I don't even think Marx does. Marx talk that much about rights. That's what I. That's what surprised me. I mean, yeah. there's a clear link between. Uh, Kant and Hegel and then Hegel and Marx. Right. So in that sense, it makes sense that, you know, they would have uh, 
that kind of German idealism connection. And even though Marx rejected the idealism of Hegel, like he's clearly buying into some part of that project. But yeah, I was surprised because I, we'll get to this when we talk about the arguments in the paper, but I would have thought that a lot of the stuff about respecting individual rights, um, which has its roots in, uh, you know, kind of Locke, and uh, that 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 Marx would think that's also offering a transcendental sanction for the status quo. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, that he wouldn't consider it to be necessary for any morally defensible theory to respect individual rights because that's just liberal enlightenment bullshit to keep people from having to give up their property. Right. So yeah, maybe my source of of um, sort of j- the jarring experience comes from the rights talk being so associated with libertarianism which is so opposite of marxism um, yeah 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 and and so but and i don't know like I, I i don't like the little marx that i've read doesn't focus that much on marx so i'm work like we almost have to take murphy at his word that yeah. marx has this concern but also it doesn't really matter for the, the argument in the paper no, it sort of motivates the like that quote motivates the argument. I got the sense that this quote is one from Marx that uh, Murphy it just probably puzzled Murphy at first, and that's why he worked out this because I think the quote is interesting because it doesn't seem like Marx talked about this that much. Should we read um, the quote we're talking about? Sh- sure. Yeah. Um, from the point of view of abstract right, there is only one theory of punishment which recognizes human dignity in the abstract, and that theory, that is the theory of Kant, especially in the more rigid formula given to it by <laughs> Hegel. Hegel says punishment is the right of the criminal. It is an act of his own will. This was the Hegelian theory of punishment says that the, the criminal wills his own punishment. Uh, the violation of right has been proclaimed by the criminal as his own right. His crime is the negation of right. And then Marx says, there's no doubt there's something specious in this formula in as much as Hegel, instead of looking upon the criminal as the mere object, the slave of justice, elevates him to the p- position of a free and self-determined being. Looking more closely, however, at the matter, we see that German idealism here, as in other instances, has but given a transcendental sanctions to the rules of existing society. It's a delusion to substitute for the individual with his real motives and multifarious social circumstances, the abstraction of free will. Nothing about this quote actually makes me think that Marx was that into rights. I mean, he qualifies, <laughs> right. he says, right. from the point of view of abstract rights. Right, he yeah. sort of, di- yeah, he sort of just then dismisses that, I think, the German idealism with this. Yeah. Um, but Murphy is has Kantian affinities, and yeah. so whether or not Marx did as well as is not relevant. I don't right. think to yeah. anything that follows. I honestly found myself maybe pushing against the Kantian view of punishment. You know, I'm confused about all this because I, I do have utilitarian uh, uh, leanings as well. So I don't really know what I believe. But this this at least gave me some good fodder for un- trying to work out in my mind what the right view of punishment might be. And, and this we'll get to at the end, but like at the end, I really wanted to say, so wait, what do we do? <laughs> well, yeah, that is yeah. an issue that I also want to discuss when we yeah. get to the end of this paper. But let, let's just go through the argument a yeah. little bit. So the idea is, if you agree with the premise that any legitimate theory of punishment has to be able to make sense of how we can have a right to inflict suffering 
on uh, another person. And what he says is, uh, what is needed in order to reconcile my undesired suffering of punishment at the hands of the state, to reconcile that with my autonomy, is a political theory which makes the state's decision to punish me in some sense my own decision. So this is the Hegel view, uh, to make sense of that. If I have willed my own punishment, consented to it, agreed to it, then even if at the time I happen not to desire it, it can be said that my autonomy and dignity remain intact. Intact, And general will theories and social contract theories try to reconcile these two things. Autonomy with state authority, including like whether the state has a right to punish or not. So then he goes through these kinds of general will, social contract theory. You know, there's, I think, a scary dystopian Hegel view where it's like (laughs) you have your uh, empirical self, which is like what you say you want and what you actually express desire for, and then what you want according to reason. And that's your true will. Your true will is what reason dictates you should want and your actual will, that's just, you know, uh, something that we can discard when we want to know what you truly will right. or desire. Yeah. Uh, like, let's, I liked t- 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 this section on social contract and how Kant dealt with it. Like, I, I did find it a bit fascinating because I just don't read this stuff. So the idea is um, by participating in society, you know that your desires are going to be in conflict with the desires of others. And uh, you understand that in order for like you to even be able to fulfill some of these desires, these, these wants, whatever, that you're going to need to live in a society where other people would not infringe upon your rights. And in doing that, maybe one view is that you're tacitly consenting to a state that's allowed to punish. So your will is it's almost like a, the revealed preference of, of an economist. It says like, well, you just, obviously you, you understand that in order for you to get any shit done, you can't have other people fucking up your shit. And so you must agree. Some deep part of you must be agreeing that punishment is a thing that the state should do for people who violate those rights. So when you yourself commit a crime, you're in violation of the thing that you believed in some deep sense and you're implicitly willing then that you be punished for yeah, exactly right even uh, if you're saying no 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 like yeah. that, you know according to these social contract people of course you're going to say no 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 at the time like who would want to be punished in the moment but right. yeah right. it's um, like when you're punishing a kid yeah and you say you did this to your you made the choice to do this to ground yourself it's not you're not saying like yeah. you actually want to be grounded for right. a month you're right. saying you did a thing that you knew could uh lead to this and was in violation of the rules that you also agreed to and consented to right. yeah this is the problem and and murphy recognizes that it's a problem he says now this idea of treating people not as in fact they say they want to be treated but rather in terms of how you think they would if rational will to be treated has obviously dangerous indeed fascistic implications yeah. surely we we want to avoid cramming indignities down the throats of people with the offhand 
firsthand observation that no matter how much they scream, they are rationally willing every bit of it. <laughs> it would be particularly ironic for such arbitrary repression to come under the mask of respecting autonomy. And that's always been the most, well, not the most offensive thing about this view, but that this idea that we're actually expanding your freedom. This is uh, like what Isaiah Berlin in the Positive and Negative Liberty paper that we discussed a long, long time ago was also uh, worried about with Hegel and mm, yeah, and, and actually I think Marx or, or or Marxists. There is a quote from Kant that I really actually loved that that is is laying out the, the his social contract view. Um, where he says, the problem of organizing a state, however hard it may seem, can be solved even for a race of devils, if only they are intelligent. The problem is, given a multiple of rational beings requiring universal laws for their preservation, but each of whom is secretly inclined to exempt himself from them, to establish a constitution in such a way that although their private intentions conflict, they check each other with the result that their public conduct is the same as if they had no such intentions. Yeah. And I, I like it because it just, it presents the problem nicely like this is a kind of a um a, like a game theory problem even though Kant would never have have said it that way um yeah but but and, and game theory operates with certain assumptions and i'm glad you read that passage because that's exactly going that's going to be a central part of the critique i think one of the more forceful parts of the critique is at, at using that conception of rationality of a bunch of self-interested devils um, uh, trying to come up with a contract that will maximize each of their self-interests, you know? Yeah, right. But then he says, but there's this other way that they try to justify it that, that you know, isn't as obviously chilling and dystopian, which is the Rawlsian approach of imagining an original position where people under a veil of ignorance have to uh, decide, you know, if you're an individual in there, you don't know anything about like whether you're going to be born in a bad neighborhood, good neighborhood, you, anything about like a, a lot of money, no money, prone to violence, not prone to violence. You don't know any of that. What institution of punishment would you choose? And this is a retributive justification of punishment. They say you would choose retributive institutions over all the other institutions because it allows you to control your own fate in a way that utilitarianism or like a therapeutic yeah. approach to punishment does not. That's another way that's maybe not as crude. Um, this was the Rawlsian. It's his tweak on, on the yeah, idealism, social contract stuff. Yeah. And um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I guess it's an improvement in a way, although I think one of the most interesting objections that Murphy raises is on exactly that. And I don't even know that it was that much of an improvement on what Kant was saying. I think he was just trying to offer some more legs on which to to support that basic claim that He's like, no, no, no. It's almost like Rawls is saying, no, 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 no. But really, like, okay, if you don't just want to believe what Kant said, imagine this, give, giving a method to people. Like, he's like, no, no, I, I found an intuitive method where if you didn't, if you weren't prone to believing uh, Kantian uh, right. views, like, now you will, because imagine this. But yes. Right. The, Again, transcendental <laughs> sanction of yeah. the status quo, yeah. which is, so, okay. So then the next part of the argument goes like this. Given that, some combination of a Rawls-Kant version of consent, you could have uh, a, in principle, morally justified system of punishment, which utilitarianism can't provide because it doesn't make the, dis the crucial distinction between right. good to do and right to do. But 
here was an insight from Marx that not enough philosophers uh, have internalized, have taken in, which is that uh, theories can be formally correct, uh, which means true in some possible world, but also be materially incorrect or materially inadequate, because uh, it, which means not true in our actual world world. And there's two ways that this can happen. Number one, that the theories in moral or political philosophy could presuppose certain empirical propositions about man and society, but those propositions turn out to be false. So then even if it was coherent or formally correct, it would be practically inapplicable. And then second, philosophical theories could put forth as a necessary truth that which is in fact merely an uh, historically conditioned contingency. And the example he uses is kind of interesting. For example, Hobbes argued that all men are necessarily selfish and competitive, but it's possible uh, that Hobbes was really doing nothing more than elevating to the status of a necessary truth the contingent fact that people around him in a capitalistic society uh, were in fact selfish and competitive. So those are the two ways you could have a theory that formally works, but uh, in practice is uh, completely inapplicable, this is what he will argue about retributivism. It actually runs afoul of both of those things. It makes false empirical assumptions, and it also um, takes a concept like rationality and gives an analysis of it that seems like it would be just the only way to understand rationality, but in fact is a product of uh, living in a Western capitalist society to view rationality that way. Yeah. Which he never offers a, uh, def a defense of why he believes oh, I, that. But <laughs> Oh, I completely disagree. I find that to be like the most compelling part of it. Because you're convinced or because you think that he actually fleshed out why yeah. this is the... Yeah, uh, the latter. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Go, we'll go through it. Yeah, um, let's, let's do it. Then he goes into, uh, I guess, Wilhelm Bonger, who is a Marxist criminologist yeah. from the early 20th century. And, you know, definitely uh, at the risk of oversimplifying, um, which he is willing to do just to get the argument out, is um, to posit in a Marxist way that criminality has two main sources. Number one, need and deprivation on the part of the disadvantaged members of society. So if you're impoverished, and you don't have access to money or opportunity, you will turn to crime. And number two, motives of greed and selfishness that are generated and reinforced in competitive capitalist uh, economies. So uh, this is definitely a big part of Marx's view that uh, the economic structure of society actually shapes our personality, shapes our uh, dispositions, desires, how we relate to one another. And capitalism... And, uh, brings out the most selfish part of us, the greediest part of us, the most individualistic parts of us, and the most competitive parts of us. Those two things together are uh, the sources of at least uh, the lion's share of criminality. And uh, he says, look, you might think this is just Marxist bullshit like you probably do, but consider the fact that uh, the vast majority of people in prison are poor. And, you know, he's not bringing race into it, although he does at, uh, at a couple points uh, bring that into it. But certainly you could also uh, add that element uh, 
to this, uh, the, the, the statistics around uh, socioeconomic status and also race are overwhelmed. It's so overwhelmingly disproportionate for the poor and black uh, people to be in prison that you would have to have some uber Charles Murrayist view of the, let me put it a different way. So that, that you would have to really think that the, the same things that made them turn to criminality also made them, are also, right. are the reasons they became impoverished. And that was, that's just unsustainable. That's not a defensible view when you look at our, you know, the, the vast inequality in life and education and resources you know, neighborhood to neighborhood. So, um, so he thinks because of that, um, th this view oversimplified it as it is the bonger view, we might disagree on how plausible it is, how much of crime it can explain, but it certainly explains a lot of it. And I think that's all Murphy needs to then mount this attack on retributivism as a theory of punishment. And he qualified his critique earlier by saying, I think it's, that this retributivism is largely inapplicable within these societies. And he footnotes and says, I qualify my thesis by the word largely to show at this point my realization explored in more detail later that no single theory can account for all of criminal behavior. So he is trying to make like a, a largely claim, but it does lead me to to wonder what he thinks in the uh, what other cases he might possibly conceive of where it doesn't uh, capture criminality. And And then if so, you know, what is it that makes those cases different? Well, um, I mean, like he does, okay. like he gives an example of someone doing like tax fraud, like a rich person doing tax fraud. And he's like, for a person, right, but he for gives a person like that, but he gives retributive theory could work. But like, right, but he says, but he, well, it could be that rich people are committing just as much crime. Um, but that doesn't undermine what I'm saying because rich people committing crime also could have uh, this cause that capitalism has made them commit the crime. Right. And so he wants to have like swallow like all of crime under this materialist uh, Marxist view of what's causing the crime, which does lead me to believe like, OK, so. A rich person j just decides to fuck over somebody. Th you're saying that this shouldn't be punished because this also has the cause that it was that capitalism gave rise to the conditions that made this rich, greedy capitalist screw over poor people. So we can't punish that person. It, it does feel like all that here's my I, general feeling i feel like murphy is is wanting to to really defend a theory of determinism that undermines responsibility in in not that that's really what's doing the work here that he thinks that that crime has its uh, its causes in something that's outside of the will of the people so I don't think so, actually, because when you look at the specific elements of the critique of retributivism, it's not about the fact that it was determined, but rather like, you know, if you're just a compatibilist or uh, even a libertarian who acknowledges that we have uh, influences our, on our behavior. That, but but I... I, I I also see what you're saying, and especially something like motives of greed and selfishness and competitiveness, like that could fire Bernie Madoff to do his Ponzi right. scheme just as much as it could could lead a, a poor person to crime because of you know bad education and uh, need. Yeah, they and need so here's money. what I so here here's where I wanted to ask you what you thought of this. So so let's say. 
Let's say that the conditions of capitalist society lead Bernie Madoff to do what he does, um, just like they lead poor people. Now, I'm not saying you're accepting that. Like, it could be. It could just be that, like, Murphy says, well, fuck it, I didn't mean the rich people. Let's just focus on the poor people, which I think would be fine. Um, but let's say that, that you do take seriously that capitalism might taint, taint the, the capitalists, the greedy ones, and cause them to commit crime. It seems to me that I would, maybe this is just because I want to, I would want to endorse some, some kind of uh, Strassonian account of like why they should still like why my reactive attitudes should not be suspended for the rich people um but it's not about reactive attitudes like it's it's about inflicting punishment and suffering on people you know putting them so but i'd think that they'd meet all the criteria for 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 blameworthiness so so here's where i'm tying like tying these together it feels as if bernie madoff meets the criteria for blameworthiness on on say a strassonian account if he does, and he was still influenced by capitalism to commit that crime, then why couldn't a poor people who a poor person who decides to uh, commit a crime also meet those? Like I feel like you would need something in addition to the economic analysis. To answer that, I think we need to go a little bit more into the details of the critique, the different uh, ways, because I actually think retributivists aren't employing a Strassonian approach in their defense of the theory. So at the very least, right, like this critique would apply to the ways in which retributivists have justified their theory of punishment. So let me just go through two of the ways that he thinks it undermines um, the, the specific details of the retributive theories. One of them is this idea that you alluded to earlier that people just by living in a society consent to certain rules and those rules involve punishing people who infringe on other people's rights. And so just our staying in the society uh, is implied consent to being punished if we break the law. And he says... Look, people can't like them living uh, and especially if you are low on the socioeconomic status, but you don't even have to be that low on the socioeconomic scale. You can't move to another country. You can't move to a different society like you have no way of surviving if you did that. And and so you're just staying in the society doesn't imply consent to anything except that you're just trying to live. Yeah, there's no opt out. Like the and with no opt out, then it seems like that argument loses yes. force. And I think that would be true whether it was a capitalist society or not. It's not like people have all, you know, in different economic structures have been able to uh, have full mobility. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by the podcast Rethinking from the TED Audio Collective, which is hosted by Adam Grant. Adam is a respected scholar. He's a professor of organizational psychology at Wharton School of Business. He's written a number of books, uh, all that apply behavioral science research to your life. And he's just an interesting, intelligent, thoughtful guy. In this podcast, uh, what he does is he interviews great people, great minds to see what assumptions they challenge, to see what we can learn from them to become our best selves. Previous guests include people like Reese Witherspoon, Dolly Parton, Mark Cuban, and many more. So if you're interested at all in this topic, in hearing an intelligent person interview people who have really made an impact on the world, 
you may very well be interested in the Rethinking Podcast. Again, it's from the TED Audio Collective, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Our thanks to the Rethinking Podcast for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. The second way in which retributivists sometimes justify, and here he's referring to like Herbert Morris and this view that we all get benefits and burdens from living in a society. And one of the burdens that we uh, all take on ourselves is to follow the rules and not try to take advantage of other people. So if we decide to uh, commit a crime, uh, take advantage of another person, um, then we are, that there is a burden that everyone else has to fairly um, uh, shoulder that we don't, is a, and we get an extra benefit at the expense of uh, somebody else. Punishment is taking away that benefit that we got from ourselves by not shouldering the burdens that everybody else has to. And here's where like inequality and what was true in 1971 is even more true today that the idea that we're all roughly distributed with benefits and burdens is uh, a complete joke. And so he says, consider an example. A man has been convicted of armed robbery. On investigation, we learn that he is an impoverished black <laughs> who's an impoverished black person, we'll say, whose whole life has been one of frustrating alienation from the prevailing socioeconomic structure, no job, no transportation. If he could get a job, substandard education for his children, terrible housing, inadequate health care for his whole family, condescending, tardy, inadequate welfare payments, harassment by the police, but no protection by them against the dangers in his community, and near total exclusion from the political process. Learning all of this, would we still want to talk as as many do of his suffering punishment under the rubric of paying a debt to society? Surely not. Debt for what? Uh, I do not think that uh, that all criminals can be so described, but I do think that this is a closer picture of the typical criminal than the picture that is presupposed in the retributive theory, the picture of an evil person who, of his own free will, intentionally acts against the just rules of society, which he knows, as a rational man, benefit everyone, including himself. That's the, like... A gentleman's club view of uh, society. And this is the thing that's just empirically false under capitalism, according to Murphy. I, by the way, I, I don't think that that's a fair, like he's, I think that he's being a little bit uh, straw man here. And so he, he's giving like the real easy example of that, like everybody's going to agree, like, oh, that poor guy doesn't, deserve, you know. And then he has these like, extraordinary strict conditions that he thinks retributivism has to adhere to. But retributivism is just requires that you be blameworthy. And then like that, you know, it could be that a on, on like some content view of free will, like you have to meet all of those conditions, but it just retributivism doesn't require that that's, those are the conditions under you, which under which you made all your decisions. And that's what I was getting at with my discussion earlier of, of compatibilism. It's not it's not that I was saying the retributivists or, or idealists are are compatibilists. I was just saying retributivism just requires some view of blameworthiness. But so, I think that's uh, not true when it comes to punishment. Like uh I like at least at the the specific theories that he's specifically targeting involve this notion of consent. And these are the, maybe the more rationalist defenses of retributivism is what he's targeting. Yeah, and you 
are uh, like seem to be saying that a more sentimentalist defense of retributivism can survive this critique, and maybe it can, but that's not what he's attacking. He is attacking the, the, the rationalist defenses, which involve respecting autonomy and um, not inflicting suffering against somebody's will. And maybe that's what I'm just not that clear on as to like how these how these theories of punishment are related to theories of blame, because um, it is interesting. This is attacking not it doesn't seem to be attacking the blameworthiness part. It seems to be attacking the right of the punisher part. Right. Um, exactly. But the right of the punisher seems to depend on some notion that the agent that committed the crime deserves to be punished it's more than that though it's not well the deserve is in the the reason they deserve punishment is that they in some sense willed their own punishment so so maybe then if he's saying retributivism that is motivated by some form of Kantian or Rawlsian notion cannot stand um and he's limiting it to that, then it makes more sense. Because I feel like there are other versions of retributivism as a theory of punishment that could just be limited to, to just saying you, the state has the right to punish anybody who deserves that punishment. And uh, you don't need to have uh, arrived at your judgment of desert in a Kantian way. You can arrive at it in, in some other way. And then I feel like, then, then now I have a theory of retributivism that might escape Murphy's uh, critique i think you're right about that and i think they're you know um he's writing this in 1971 uh and yeah what's all the rage is more those uh kantian like the that herbert morris yeah. paper persons and punishment was that was what jump-started this new wave of retributive theories in philosophy and so i think he is specifically targeting that and rawls and uh and, and the Kant-Hegel view, which I think he's right about. I, I, I think like what you're saying that retributivism as a whole uh, defended at from this more sentimentalist kind of approach might not, I haven't even actually thought about that uh, at length, but it might not be vulnerable to this kind of critique, although it also might, depending on how our reactive attitudes, are, you know, whether yeah, they're, they're not... sensitive to... Um, yeah. certain things like deprivation that's, and uh, that's right. And stress. that's what I'm not, that's yeah, that that's what is just, I think you're right that this is just historically like, this is not a paper that could have tackled that. I do find though that Murphy's takedown of that, like social contracty uh, view is that it's good. And it just does seem absurd to talk about an idea that can be abused. What I'm, what I'm fighting is that like, okay, that, idea can definitely be abused that you know that treating well no you really wanted it so therefore like let me incarcerate you know a third of black men right. <laughs> or whatever um utilitarian justifications can be really abused like i i think part of my resistance is at the end i don't have a theory that allows me to punish anybody yeah, yeah. and and what i'm really curious about is and this is maybe just a question about marxism is the belief really that non-capitalist societies wouldn't have that crime. Like surely there's all kinds of societies that have existed ever 
have the crime rates really been, you know, controlling for the size of the society? But like, have the crime rates, don't people commit crimes of passion all the time? I mean, they certainly don't. Like, not that much stuff. Like, we've been doing in the class, actually, for the first time, some of the Foucault stuff on punishment. And, um, you know, what he says is that if you go back to, you know, 15, 1600s, like punishment was much more like it was much more violent and barbaric in turn, but and, and much more public, but also oh. much rarer. And 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 little things that people did, like if you stole some carrots from some neighboring, uh, I don't know, estate or whatever, they would just let that go more often than not. They they didn't have like this idea of criminalizing everything and setting everything down as some sort of rigid law and that that is kind of an invention of uh, the Enlightenment period uh, under the guise of uh, humane, uh, being more humane in how you punish what it actually did. It did, it had the effect of two things. Number one, uh, punishing more widely. So widening the scope of punishment and also distributing the agency of punishment. Cause there, you know, every so often there would be riots after these public tortures and executions of people cause they would have some sympathy. And so this, uh, and, and they knew exactly who to riot against. It was the sovereign and it was the, uh, executioners. So, you know, like, I, I think it actually is an open question to, uh, and even just a question of what we define as, criminality uh, is something that is pretty dependent on the kind of society that you live in. Yeah. What I, what I'm not sure of is um, like, you know, I totally agree with you about widening the scope of punishment. Uh, it, my, I guess what I really don't know is, is that a feature of like societies getting so large and complex or, is it specifically a feature of capitalism? Um, and I don't, I guess I don't have the right comparison case. Like, I don't know what is, is there any large society that is not capitalist that we could compare and see, like, did they not widen the scope of punishment? Cause you know, you were talking about like the brutality of, of punishment in like the 1600s. And I'm, I'm currently reading a book that's a, about that era. And a lot of it was punishment for, you know, treason against, yeah. <laughs> against the sovereign. Exactly. Right. So like, but like any small act could be taken as as treacherous and they would just do these like drawn and quartered like violent gruesome things and like have the heads of criminals just like you know adorning the the uh, London bridge it was crazy so it's the idea that like soviet russia was never like the appropriate comparison case like cuz yes cuz they were explicitly non-capitalist but was crime lower like is the I think that's a, like a red herring or just a, he's not even saying that under communism, like retributive theory would be justified. He's not saying, he's certainly not saying that no, but he's some saying like the capitalism is the bastardization of it, like it will be. But I'm, I'm asking the question genuinely, like I'm not trying to get a gotcha. No, no, no. I'm just genuinely asking like, is the idea that capitalism is at the root of all this crime? Like, is the, is it really the idea that non-capitalism of some sort would just have less crime because people wouldn't be tainted by this stuff. And so I'm just trying to find any, like any example of like a non-capitalist society that wouldn't be taken as like an exception or as like a. There are examples of that, but at much smaller scales of society. Yeah. So you, you want large scale and, you know, like yeah, almost I, modern I don't know industrial what... society, but that's kind of one of those things that it it is hard to disentangle. 
at the heart of it is my question about human nature. Like at the heart of it is like, I'm wondering how, you know, is, is there just greed in human nature that's independent of capitalism? And that's just a hard question to answer. Of course, you're right. And, and so actually this gets to, I really want to talk about this attack on the veil of ignorance and original position thing, because it actually relates to what you just said. So, um, uh, this is what I find to be the most fascinating part of the critique. So he says, the model of rational choice, this is on page 238 of the piece, uh, found in social contract theory is egoistic, right? Rational institutions are that that would be agreed to by calculating egoists or devils in Kant's terminology in the quote that you just read uh, earlier in the discussion, right? And, you know, the Rawls also thinks of people who are calculating egoists, uh, but they're under the veil of ignorance. And uh, so Murphy asks, why give egoism this special status such that it is built a priori into the analysis of the concept of rationality? Is this not simply to regard as necessary that which may only be contingently found uh, in the society around us? Starting from such an analysis, a certain result is inevitable, namely a transcendental sanction for the status quo. Start with a bourgeois model of rationality, and you will, of course, wind up defending a bourgeois bourgeois theory of consent, a bourgeois theory of justice, and a bourgeois theory of punishment. And then uh, what's interesting is that this bourgeois theory of punishment also operates, this is what a lot of critics of, you know, mass incarceration and, a, a, you know, a high police presence in a state, uh, they will say this, that really what that's doing is keeping the ruling class in power and, and stopping people from uh, revolting against it. And so you end up having this circle of a theory of rationality, which results in a theory of punishment. And that theory of punishment uh, ends up reinforcing and preserving a condition that would uh, produce that conception of rationality. And none of this is, it's not like a cabal of Illuminati people doing this. Like this is just what naturally would arise. This is how if you live under capitalism, you're going to just be prone to think, well, people are naturally greedy and people are naturally egoist. And that's also how we should understand rationality. I mean, we always make fun of economists and how they think of like how it's just so plainly irrational to turn down like a banana today when you could have three bananas (laughs) in a week. Like, you know, I do think that rationality as a concept is infected with all these things that are purely contingent and not some kind of a priori way that we have to understand rationality. And I, I, I really think this is an interesting part of the critique. Um, I, I do also think that it undermines his right, you know, individual rights respecting necessary condition <laughs> right. at the beginning as well. I don't see how it does. Yeah, it, it is funny that way. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess I found it less a rich analysis than you did because uh, it's unclear to me what he could mean by rationality. That's not like, like what, what is bourgeois rationality? Just he's, he's taking like the, the Rawls position as saying um, that people are by nature selfish. No, not um, by nature selfish. It's the conception of rationality in the original position is I will choose the institutions of justice um, that will most benefit me, but I don't get to know anything about my relative, you know, fortunes or the thing that's rational is 
the thing that would benefit me the most when I'm behind the veil of ignorance. That's going to be the most rational kind of principles of justice, rational institutions under which to, uh, we should live. I mean, it is an, it, there, there is the appeal to self-interest that is, you know, that, that is a pull there. But I also think a pull is what is a fair society. Like, I, I, I just I think that if you're concerned about distribution of resources in society for the sake of everyone else, you might agree that uh, not being tainted, say, by already being in the position of having like uh, b- being rich would allow you to see that what truly is fair is is uh, uh, a just distribution no matter who you are. That It doesn't seem that bourgeois to me. And I don't know what the opposite right. of, a, of a theory of rationality would be there. What's, like, what, what is the conception of rationality that he would defend? Like, I, I don't get that. The, I, I think, like, you could imagine a conception of rationality that wants the best for everybody rather than just the best for yourself. But that's what I think. But that's, I guess, what I'm saying. Like, I, I would read Rawls's original position argument to be a kind of uh, decision about what's best for everybody. But I don't think it's designed that way, though. It's supposed to be what's best for you. Um, and the, the what's best for em- everybody only comes out if it does in the fact that you don't know where you're going to land in the society. Yeah, but it's it's weird because it is used to motivate a true, like a true position of like equality for everybody. Well, no, not I, it's it's is it more redistributary than uh, like your your preferred philosophers and political scientists like Hayek and for sure, <laughs> like a Nozick. Absolutely it is. This is where I really like this. It's, it's, it is a foundational attack on all of that, you know, whether it's Rawls or Nozick or whoever. If you are a rationalist about this. Is what he's saying, uh, if you had a different conception of rationality, then, then maybe we could start an argument about whether or not uh, uh, you can ground punishment in rationality. Or, or, yeah, if there was some unambiguously, intuitively true conception of rationality, then we could use that to try to mount this defense of retributivism, maybe. You know, it might still right. suffer Although from the, it, yeah, uh, from the other still. problem. This is the, there's, uh, that, that we've already talked about, but at least it would be a starting point. But this just cuts it off right at the roots because um, you're taking this conception of rationality that he thinks emerges under capitalism and bears full fruit in the Enlightenment. Like, this is why it's the deepest part of the critique. It doesn't even get the kind of Kantian or Hegelian or Rawlsian defenses of uh, retributivism off the ground. Like, it can't even launch. Yeah, I like. I guess I'm just still not quite sure whether this it, it's necessary for his argument. But like, we can move on. I just wonder if, like, if there if there were a society where everybody had this conception of rationality, say, suppose that there was just like a bunch of bourgeois people, and they they were all like, "Yeah, this is totally what rationality is." But that is our society. Like, I think he thinks that is our society. Uh, no, because. Because he thinks that people aren't actually endorsing this this uh, kind of social contracty sort of thing. No, he thinks that of course we're going to think that this is the one true rationality because we're products of the capitalist culture that we grow up in. But you know, when you're being a philosopher, this is not the only independently argued for 
or intuitively obvious conception of rationality as, you know, egoistic people living under certain conditions that we, you know, maybe a veil of ignorance or whatever. And so it doesn't matter if we all agree that that's the conception of rationality. Well, that's, that's, that makes no difference. Like we, that's, that's what you would expect that we would uh, embrace that conception of rationality. You know, I guess I think that uh, like, at heart, Rawls isn't saying that egoism is what rationality is. I thought Rawls was just saying, like, everybody has self-interest. Like, we all do. This is just a fact. We all want to survive. Like, that's, just take that as a starting point. But he takes more than that, like, in the original position. Like, he gives but it's, more to, uh, it's not just wanting to survive. It's want, it is purely, you are out, and when you're in the original position, you are out for yourself, and that's it. Yeah, it doesn't seem to me that that that's what his concept of rationality is, though. I think he just thinks, let's start with all you know is you. You want to survive. Like, you want to live. You don't want to, like, live a shitty life. Like, I don't think that's just what rationality is. I think it's just people have this self-interest. Now, you could argue that that the argument is fails because it is itself uh, not rational. But to say that it's just his concept of rationality has this it's like baked in falsely from the start seems seems like odd it doesn't i'm I'm confused as to why i don't quite understand your objection to this because it's true that that's how rawls determines what are the rational principles to adopt uh what his self-interested like people would choose uh behind the veil of ignorance at least the early rawls he might have like eased up on some of the like Kantian aspects of the, you know, that relies on this being actually rational rather than just what we all agreed to. So it could be that later Rawls is more along the lines of what you're, you know, what you want to suggest. But, um, I think that Rawls doesn't come about when he's writing this paper. And in any case, this is, I think a good critique of that Rawls, the rationalist Rawls. Because he does, he doesn't think, oh, this is just our shared conception of rationality and all we really want is to survive. He's like, no, you are trying to uh, do what's best for you. In, and that's the rational and whatever those things are, or what we, uh, you know, what the, the, the rational principles of justice to adopt are. Yeah. So, okay. Well, then I'll say I do agree that self interest. Uh, is is not rationality, like, it, or at least it's not all of rationality. That that's a mistake. I get, and I'm just doing a terrible job of communicating what I think is weird about Murphy's argument here. But I here's my last stab at it. There is the attack that you might make on whether or not people are fundamentally motivated by self interest, and then there is what would follow from that, which yeah. is I think the 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 steps that Rawls wants to take you on that he believes are motivated by by rational like good reasons if we were fundamentally self-interested is that no that that we might be yeah if we're if you start with the premise that we're all fundamentally self-interested then what would follow from that um and it could be that that first step is just wrong it'll never get off the ground because that's just a dumb conception of how humans are or it's or a, it could it's a be contingent that the, conception like, yeah or yeah. contingent conception yeah. or it could be that the steps after that are flawed re- rationality and so if if that's the critique that I'm not sure what like what uh, the steps the rational steps would be 
but maybe it's just so focused on this uh, critique of whether or not self-interest is the starting point. Yes, that's exactly okay. what it is. That's the okay. premise that he's attacking. Uh, he's saying that is the conception of human nature and rationality. But like, you know, at, the, at that first level, that, that is a historically contingent way of understanding that. And um, I don't think he has a problem with the steps that come after that. It is okay. that, that. Well, that's why I started by saying, like, is it that the problem with egoism is part of human nature? And you corrected me. Well, because it's <laughs> not just part of human nature. It is all mm. of it, you know, uh, in this conception. And that's okay. that's the issue. I mean, look, yeah. And, and I what I also really like about this is this idea of the... Uh, the result dictating the premises because a lot of the even Rawls um, and certainly a lot of other social contract theories end up saying so more or less we're good you know like we're justified yeah. in doing like in having the rules that we have and yeah. even Rawls although less so than a lot of the others um, can justify a good amount of inequality as rational you know um, yeah and there's there's where I'm I'm squarely like anti like there there's where i'm like well <laughs> just look like it doesn't seem to have met even what rawls would consider a just society like something is deeply wrong like there's something there's there's something rotten in denmark like the one yeah. thing that pulls me away from this paper a little bit is just and i think you sort of alluded to this early on where you say what does he want us to do and it's it's so disconnected, this paper and this debate, um, from like the facts about <laughs> criminal justice and yeah. how justice is actually administered, which has nothing to do with retributivism, utilitarianism, any, <laughs> right. any of it. Like all that theorizing at the, like it only, I, I, I'm feeling this because I've been, you know, teaching this course, like it don't, it's a borderline offensive to be talking about this, like high, somewhat technical theoretical debate when, you know, that just doesn't seem in any way connected to, uh, what's actually happening in our criminal justice system. And like, again, yeah. way more so now, even than uh, at the time that he was writing, but certainly also at the time that he's writing. Yeah, I agree. And somewhat ironically, because, you know, the, mm -hmm. the whole start of it was <laughs> was like, hey, like these bullshit theories, like don't have a they don't apply to the real world. Right. And then at the end, I'm like, so how does yours apply? Like, you know, like what I, I get like I get it. I'm sympathetic to the argument. Um, yeah, I just don't know how it applies. It's yeah. purely critical that this paper, I think that's something also, you know, that I'm realizing even more. It is not offering a positive alternative uh, whether it's a conception of rationality or a way to restructure society so that, you know, retributivism could be applicable. It's not it's not trying to do any of that. It is just a purely negative critique of retributive, the, the rationalist retributive theories of the time. And you know what? I kind of I like I well, not kind of I respect him for sticking to his uh retributivist guns because i do think that a lot of people when faced with arguments of a similar style like uh where, when they say like most people don't deserve what they're getting a lot of people do just fall back on well so then let's just justify in a utilitarian fashion like let's just do our best to bring about the best society and he, he just won't do it he ends like just like 
eh, you know, maybe one day we'll have a society that where people can meet the conditions for yeah. being punished. Like that would be an awesome society where people really deserve it in the Hegelian way. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like, and he even somewhat hints at the idea that maybe, you know, if we reoriented society according to more Marxist uh, principles, there would not be that much crime to deal with in the first place. But that's right. just a But the final... people who are in prison would really deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Exactly. Again, this is like 71. So this is clockwork orange time. This is, you know, like the therapeutic <laughs> right. approach. The, you know. Oh, yeah. Let's the, talk about that. Like he really doesn't like that. Yeah. Yeah, because it is a you are changing somebody's character against their own will uh, without their consent. And yeah. um, and you can do it indefinitely. Really. You know, it's like you wanted to slip a moral pill into <laughs> among other pills into uh, Nikki's drink. <laughs> I'm a utilitarian when it comes to that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there is a quote. I do want to read his quote about, uh, he says, uh, so he's he's talking about the Bonger paper and uh, or book uh, that he loves, like he's all on the nuts of Bonger until uh, he gets to the end. So he says, what does Bonger offer? He suggests near the end of his book that in a properly designed society, all criminality would be a problem, quote, for the physician rather than the judge, end quote. But this surely will not do. The therapeutic state where prisons are called hospitals and jailers are called psychiatrists simply raises again all the old problems about the justification of coercion and its reconciliation with autonomy that we faced in worrying about punishment. So yeah, like he's at least he's consistent about this. Like he's like that's just as undermining of agency as this other stuff. Like he's not like willing to go down the like your brain made you do it, so therefore I'm gonna like treat No, no, no. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. I like this paper also because it is just each step of the argument is very clear and he will bite bullets uh, yeah. when he has to. But um, like I, I, this is kind of an, a nice model of making an argument. I do worry that it is arguing at this kind of epiphenomenal level that right. uh, it's hard to see how this can um, actually impact, you know, what's really behind uh, the way we approach criminal punishment in in a mod, in, in a capitalist society and, and what and probably other societies too. It's like uh, it, it feels like we're arguing about different things than is what's driving the approaches in in reality. Which, like you said, is kind of ironic because that's kind of his point that's where too. Starts. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that if I think he died actually. Um, but do you think that if recently, if, I think Jeffrey, Martin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that he would say at the very least, let's be more compassionate in our punishment? Like, is that a step in the right direction? Like, I mean, the severity of punishment for all sorts of crimes for, especially for the economically, um, like less fortunate is, is terrible. So I think anybody would argue that, but do you think that like, given the current state of affairs, given that he thinks that that the structure of society is what turns people into criminals. I don't think he would say, let's just stop punishing. And I don't think he would be willing to say, let's punish on utilitarian grounds. But, but like if pressed for an actual prescription, would it just be like, well, let me just cut some of this shit out. Like cut some of the punishment. I mean, that's a good question. I think this is part of the problem with putting all your chips into the Kantian pot. It's like, 
if you're violating somebody's rights, whether you violate them for two years or 15 years, it's like, it's not that. It's it's, not justified. Yeah. It's just not justified either way. And so it probably, I guess you could say it's less of a violation of somebody's rights. And so it's always good to do less of a violation of (laughs) their rights than uh, a greater violation. But yeah, so I don't know. Um, I assume that he, like any decent person, would support <laughs> Which, low, yeah. lower sentences. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> yeah. What kind of stupid question is that? Yeah. Um, I have, you know, I hadn't really thought though about how that argument against Rawls might. It is interesting that he still sticks to his his retributivist conceptions of 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 rights tr- when he's undermined the basis of of the the Rawlsian approach that might erode the basis of the whole approach. Yeah. That's what I think. Like, I think that that that's a section where he takes on the original position there. Like, I think that also undermines the whole rights-based approach uh, in the first place. And so would undermine the formal correctness of retributivism, right. not just the material correctness. Right. It's a risky move on his part. Yep. <laughs> uh, he could be hoisted by his own. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Kantian uh, but- petard. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> ah, well, maybe we could, uh, maybe a title. We'll see. That, exactly, yeah. All right, well, um, glad I got to talk about this paper. I'm glad you, uh, you seem to not be too opposed to it. No, I, whatever I had problems with, um, it was worth working through. In fact, uh, just his outlining of the, the, the juxtaposition of his Kantianism and his Marxism, I, I learned. I wonder if he just kind of rejected his Kantianism after a certain <laughs> point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that would be the sensible thing. But you can't trust Kantians to be sensible, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.